0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Media Matters Minute, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The Jimmy Dore Show. And a note that I probably heard my first Bush library joke around 10 years ago, but now that it's here, I think it's actually sadder than it is funny.
1: George W. Bush will soon be unveiling the George W. Bush Presidential Center, including his library. Insert Bush library joke here. All right, well, Dallas Morning News uh, talked to him, and he explained you know, his presidency and that he was a little uh, misunderestimated and that he was actually very confident in what he has done and who he is. So let's get to some of his awesome quotes. Uh, first, is he happy no longer being president? Oh, you betcha. He says, the liberation of not feeling like I've got to be in the limelight uh, is great, and it is, in fact, liberating, as he explains. Now, this is what we've been saying about Bush for a long time. He loved that he won the presidency twice, kind of. He loved the glory of it, but he didn't want the job. He was exhausted from the job. That's why he broke every record there was on number of vacation days he took. He said, like, oh, my God, I still have to do president thing? I can't take this anymore. So he's thrilled to be an ex-president. Uh, now... When they ask him, hey, look, uh, don't you want to weigh in on some of these issues that are relevant today? The answer is no. Now, let me tell you the real reason why. It's because he doesn't know anything about them. He never cared about them in the first place. He just wanted to win, and he wanted to outdo his daddy. But it's not like it's Clinton. It's not keeping him up at night. Gee, I wonder what's happening with the economy or what we should do with Pakistan. He's thinking, oh, thank God I don't have to try to figure out and hurt my head again thinking about what I should do with Pakistan. So they ask him, hey, hey, what's your field of expertise? He says, well, I don't know. And then he gives this great quote. People ask me, what about the economy? My answer is, why didn't you go hire an economist or hire five economists and get 15 different opinions? <laughs> That's the guy who was president for eight years. What do you think about the economy? I don't know. Higher the a <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. We need not a complicated question. I didn't ask you for a macroeconomic outlook. Hey, how do you think the economy's going? You see that he breaks out in a cold sweat when you ask him a simple question like that. He's like, oh, no. Not again. Not in the limelight when I was president. Okay. So, hey, G- Georgie, what do you like? He's, quote, I enjoy telling people what it's like. There's some lessons inherent in sharing the stories of the presidency. See, he exa- loves being an ex-president. They say, come in for a beer or an iced tea or whatever we're drinking today. Look at the arranging. <laughs> Let me tell you the stories. You know I got Saddam's gun. <laughs> my daddy couldn't get Saddam's gun. I had it. It was next to my office in the whole office. You know I was president? Twice. Okay. So, uh, George, uh, wh- what is your legacy? You know, you're talking about compassionate and conservative, et cetera. Well, he says, "Proof is in the pudding. Quote, the best way for people to understand what I meant by compassionate conservative is to look at the programs we implemented and look at the results. Well, indeed. Look at the results. Iraq War, over 100,000 civilians killed, more than 5,000 of our guys killed, about 40,000 wounded you know when you include private contractors etc., over a trillion dollars wasted in that war the disastrous uh, response to hurricane katrina and the list goes on and on just look at the results a gigantic deficit a trillion dollar deficit he left behind when he had a five hundred hundred billion dollars surplus handed to him by bill clinton just look at the results and you get a sense of whether this man was a compassionate conservative or got anything done at all and he knows it and he knows he's an embarrassment so when they ask him about his record, look at how telling this is. He says he's not interested in finger-pointing or self-pity. Now, if you ask a successful person like Bill Gates, would he give you that answer? Would he say, oh, I'm not interested in finger-pointing, i don't, I got no self-pity. No, only a person who's loaded with self-pity and realizes he's at fault says, don't point fingers. Okay, i got no self-pity. Why would Warren Buffett say that? Why would Bill Gates say that? Why would a successful president like Bill Clinton say that? They wouldn't say that. Bush says it because he's embarrassing even to himself. But he's going to pretend to be confident later. Then he says, Much of my presidency was defined by things that you didn't necessarily want to have happen. (laughs) Awesome. And by the way, one of those things, or two of those things, was you getting elected in the first place, or being president. Um, and one of his great excuses, as always, is it's easy to forget what life was like when a decision was made regarding Iraq. In other words, it's not like we made the right decision, but we were in a panic. And so, I don't know, man, I, what happened on 9-11? Let's invade Iraq. I don't even believe that, but that's the best excuse he's got. All right. Uh, but nonetheless, it, he goes back to his old ways. Will Farrell described it best when he talked about the characters that he plays, including George W. Bush. He said, what I give them is a certain unearned confidence. And here is Bush again. Quote, I'm confident decisions were made the right way. And, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he doesn't look, even in that quote, he doesn't say it was the right decisions. He says, I'm confident decisions were made the right way. So, even he knows, he knows. But he's desperately trying to deflect and say, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, I'm okay, I'm totally comfortable, okay, okay. Quote, I'm comfortable with what I did. Now, again, if you're a successful person, why would you have to say, I'm comfortable with what I did? Of course you're comfortable with what you did. Bill Gates, how are you comfortable with what you did? He's like, yeah, of course I am. I'm several billion dollars comfortable. Okay, tens of billions of dollars comfortable. Uh, and then Bush, it's like, wants to drill at home. So how about yourself? Quote, I'm comfortable with who I am. I'm comfortable with who I am. I know, Georgie, I know. Man, look, the good news is, as you can see from these quotes... It's kind of ripping him up inside. So, you know, we thought that he'd be like, "Ah, eh, whatever." Or hundreds of thousands of people killed. I screwed up the whole country. And by the way, I haven't even talked about how there was a giant economic crash, and, that lo- and we lost eight million jobs in that crash right before he left. I mean, it was a disaster on top of a disaster, right? But at least, even as he's trying to deflect and paint these goofy paintings over here, he realizes what a mess he was. Now, what are his pressing concerns today? Well, the Dallas Morning News explains, among his most pressing concerns was whether his hamstrings were ready for a mountain bike ride later that day. Well, okay, I see that at least he's got his priorities right. They explain that he uh, is an avid mountain biker. He hits the trail often. He likes to play golf and attend Texas Rangers games. And as, of course, we all know now, he's taken up painting. Uh, Well, when they asked him, um, hey, are people surprised that you've taken up such challenging tasks? By the way... How do you like this softball interview? Oh, Mountain, you rode a bike today, Georgie, and you watched a baseball game? Why, those are challenging tasks. Do you think people are surprised by that? And Bush gives a classic Bush response. Quote, people are surprised, of course. Some people are surprised. I can even read. (laughs) And if there's one thing that Bush was right, right about all along, it's this.
2: But let me, look, let me, look. The key for me is to keep expectations low.
1: Indeed. Don't worry. For your presidential center, for your library, for your entire legacy and record, George W. Bush, mission accomplished. Our expectations are very low.
2: And the headset that you always were a queer one from the start.
3: The careers you say you want to be remembered for your heart. Your obsession gets you known throughout the school for so being strange. Making life-size models of the velvet underground in play.
2: In the queue for lunch, they take the piss. You've got no appetite.
4: So George Bush is out there. So there's a story in the National Journal by Tom DeFrank, um, with some updates about his uh, some blind quotes that are worth reading he tells uh, close uh, close friends i'm done with politics i'm not done with life and i've got a real good life he recently reminded a political ally not for the first time a close friend told the national journal he's enjoying the hell out of life He's his loosey-goosey self again, the way he used to be. In other words, not pretending to not be a fuck-up anymore. (laughs) You have no idea how relieved he is to be out of the game, one of his oldest friends said. He doesn't miss politics even a little. Maybe that has something to do with him being such a disastrous president. Of course he's confident about turning around his reputation. One long-time counselor told National Journal, how else could he be? But he's got a ways to go to mending his, his, his record, if it can be done. There's a lot of baggage to deal with. Iraq, Afghanistan, most of all the excessive spending. And at the moment, the trajectory isn't going in the right direction. Oh yeah, that thing about the torture, the war crimes... That, uh, you know, thing on 9-11 after he had said, now you've covered your ass when he got the the warnings about it. That, whatever. Meanwhile, he's convinced his presidency ultimately would get higher marks than contemporary assessments. I'll let history decide. And I'll also hope that uh, Jen Rubin... Writes a nice little piece about me in the Washington Post. Holy cow, she has. What a coincidink. Jen Rubin from the Washington Post, one of the, um, this is the woman who also said that, uh, said that um, Mitt Romney was a great and underappreciated man. She writes, unlike Obama's tenure, there was no successful attack on the homeland after (laughs) 9-11. And the anthrax. After 9-11, he gets a mulligan. (laughs) And it turned out that the triumvirate of Iraq, Iran, North Korea really was the axis of evil. Except for that part where Iran was empowered by what we did in Iraq. And our stature in the world dropped significantly. And Korea is really a joke.
5: Also, Iran was really, really helpful in the initial stages of evading Afghanistan. And they offered us a pretty comprehensive deal, which we rejected out of hand.
6: Well,
4: that's because they were the axis of evil.
5: I'm trying to build a concept here. Hey,
4: come on. You're stepping (laughs) on my... Sippin' on (laughs) my narrative. President Bush took a huge political risks to back the surge in Iraq, which worked, except for the extent that it didn't actually work. Iraq is still a total mess. People are dying in the tens and dozens weekly. And then, of course, there wouldn't be a need for the surge had you not illegally invaded and occupied that country based on a pack of lies in the first place. He's responsible for one of the most popular and fiscally sober entitlement plans, Medicare Part D. The words fiscally sober mean absolutely nothing if they can be used in this context. We could achieve and put Medicare on a path for almost total solvency by simply allowing the government to negotiate and use its volume discount powers with pharmaceutical industry on Medicare Part D. But no, that's not the case. Only when we see a robotic cold president like Obama do we remember fondly the tender, tearful love of country Bush often conveyed and the steely anger directed at our enemies? Um, someone's got a little bit of George Bush love there. Only when a president completely bollocks up our relationship with both the Palestinians and the Israelis, do we recall how warm and productive was our relationship with the Jewish state under Bush and how Israel proved willing to take risks for peace under the circ- right circumstances? Recall that it was the Bush administration that forced the Israelis and the Palestinians, before they were ready, to hold elections which empowered Hamas and scuttled any opportunity for any type of peace accords. Recall that it was the Bush administration that pushed the Israelis into attacking Lebanon, which proved to be disastrous. Recall that it was the Bush administration who, on in every turn, rather than providing Israel a counterweight to domestic urges to be more brutal with Palestinians, urged them on to do more. But he was so warm and tender and loving to the Jewish people in Israel. Bush's shortcomings, misreading misreading Putin. I looked into his eyes. I saw a real man, Putin, Putin. Leaving office without dealing with Iran, some excesses in domestic spending are evident. Those are all his shortcomings? Hmm. Bush, like so many other presidents, can be judged best with the passage of time. Yes, the more people who die and forget what George Bush was like, the better off he will be, indeed.
6: When you think of George W. Bush, you might think about an aggressive and illegal war that resulted in the deaths of perhaps a million people. Torture and secret prisons, domestic spying, cutting taxes for the rich while slashing veterans' health care, or maybe the whole stealing that election thing. Those who harbor such thoughts will need to hang on tight to ride what looks like it will be a wave of coverage seeking to rehabilitate Bush around the dedication of his presidential library at Southern Methodist University. The Washington Post's Dan Balls suggested that the library would trigger debate over Bush's record. But if most reporting looks like his April 23rd piece, a roundup of quotes overwhelmingly from Bush friends and associates, there won't be much of that. The National Journal's Ron Fournier covered Bush for years for AP. His April 22nd piece was headlined, Go Ahead, Admit It, George W. Bush is a Good Man. The Dallas Morning News reported Bush's hope that the library's even-handed treatment of his legacy helps satisfy visitors' intellectual curiosity. Bush says they tried to avoid finger-pointing. And so does the paper, with lines like, quote, the success or failure of his Iraq plan will take historians years to figure out, close quote. On the other hand, the paper needed no time at all, To reject a paid ad from the peace group Code Pink that highlighted the violent impact of Bush's presidency, though the ad used data undisputed by the U.S. government. Perhaps it's too soon for readers to be reminded of those facts.
4: Greenwald has done a piece talking about the motive for anti-U.S. terrorism and how it is cited over and over again. And there's virtually no variation from what we hear. And whether it was yesterday uh, t- or two days ago, or I, I should say we played it uh, yesterday, but from uh, Meet the Press this past weekend, Tom Brokaw even raises this issue. He starts off by talking about what little we know at this point of the motivations of the Boston bombers. But from what has been leaked, and he cautions, and rightfully so, that we need to take this with a grain of salt because we have no official reporting on this. But that... Zokar Tsarinev, has told interrogators that the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan motivated him and his brother to carry out the attack. Now, on a day when George Bush is going around and performing all sorts of interviews to promote the opening of his library... And let's talk about what he said to uh, Diane Sawyer on ABC. As far as I'm concerned, debate is over. Finito. I added that part. I mean, I did what I did. And historians will ultimately judge those decisions. In terms of the lack of weapons of mass destruction, which are acknowledged in the museum, we've talked about this, we're just laying out facts, and that was a fact. I'm comfortable in the decision-making process. I think the removal of Saddam Hussein was the right decision for not only our own security, but for giving people a chance to live in a free society. Which, of course, is completely diluted, both from what you could anticipate happening and as to what has happened. But history will ultimately decide that. And I won't be around to see it. Now I don't know what George Bush's timeline for history is. But he's trying to give himself a decent padding. Right? I, mean, I don't know how old he is. In his 70s at this point? 60s. Late sixties. So hopefully I'll live until I'm two hundred and fifty. And uh historians at that point might say, Hey, look, Iraq is free. <laughs> That must have been because 175 years ago, George Bush made the decision to go in and kill or cause the, the civilian deaths of over 130,000, 150,000, Who? Hey, why bother counting? His, let history decide. I'm going to live until I'm 275 years old. That's my plan. See, my plan is to cryogenically freeze myself so that history doesn't start ticking until I'm long gone. See? So then, the historians will start in about uh, 300 years from now. (laughs) See, I got the whole thing planned out in my head. People say I wasn't smart. I'm the one who's... I figured out what, uh, what the, the history uh, algorithm is. But the point about this is that what we're seeing now in terms of these terror attacks continue to be part of his legacy. Our extended involvement in Afghanistan, occupation, Semi occupation at this point of Afghanistan. Occupation is part of George Bush's legacy. The continued deaths in Iraq, part of George Bush's legacy. And so when we hear from these Boston bombers, that their motivation had to do with Iraq and Afghanistan. This is on George Bush. This is not to say that uh, President Obama does not have some responsibility in prolonging our engagement in Afghanistan. But this is on George Bush. When the attempted underwear bomber said, quote, I had an agreement with at least one person to attack the United States in retaliation for U.S. support of Israel and in retaliation the killing of innocent civilian Muslim populations in Palestine and in Gaza and Muslim populations in Yemen, Iraq, Somalia, Afghanistan and beyond, most of them women and children and non-combatants. This is part of George Bush's legacy as well. And to be sure it is part of President Obama's legacy of continuing uh, drone strikes. This is a function of U.S. policy. When the Times Square bomber says, if the United States does not get out of Iraq, Afghanistan, and other countries controlled by Muslims, we will be attacking U.S., And this is also a continuation, not just of a George Bush's legacy, again, a, about the drone attacks. Emails and other communications obtained by the U.S. documents show how this Times Square bomber, F- Faisal Shahzad, transformed from a law-abiding, middle-class, naturalized American into someone who felt compelled to engage in violence as a result of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, drone attacks, Israeli violence against Palestinians and Muslims generally, Guantanamo, and torture. Apparently in these emails he asked, can you tell me a way to save the oppressed and a way to fight back when rockets are fired at us and Muslim blood uh, blood flows? The attempted NYC uh, subway bomber. Zazi, the first Afghan-American involved in such a plot, on his pleading guilty. During the spring and summer of 2008, I conspired with others to travel to Afghanistan to join the Taliban and fight against the U.S. military and its allies. Al-Qaeda leaders there asked us to return to the United States and conduct martyrdom operations. We agreed to this plan. I did so because of my feelings about what the United States was doing in Afghanistan. The Fort Hood shooter, Nadal Hassan. Part of this disenchantment was his deep and public opposition to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan a stance shared by some medical colleagues, by, shaped by him, uh, by a growing religious fervor. Greenwald goes on to say it should go without saying that the issue here is causation, not justification or even fault. It is nonetheless vital to understand why there are so many people who want to attack the U.S. as opposed to, say, Peru or South Africa or Brazil or Mexico or Japan or Portugal. It's vital for two separate reasons, he says. First, He says that some leading American opinion makers love to delude themselves and mislead others into believing that the U.S. is attacked despite the fact that it is peaceful and peace-loving and freedom-giving and innocent. They don't hate us for our freedoms, in other words. As the attackers themselves make clear as they can, it's not religious fanaticism but rather political grievance that motivates these attacks. Religious conviction may make them more willing to fight, but the motive is anger over what is being done by the U.S. and its allies to Muslims and Muslim countries. And if these countries were not Muslim, and they were all Christian, they would undoubtedly say the same thing. We certainly see religious fervor, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Christianity, whether it's any other religion, drive people to commit atrocities. We have seen it historically. We see it uh, with settlers attacking uh, Muslims in the West Bank. We see it with Christians blowing up um, abortion clinics. And the analogy here is not that this is causation. There's abortion uh, is legal in this country, therefore, it is causing these people to bomb it. And may- maybe that is. But we have to make a value judgment here. Our Supreme Court has found abortion to be legal. That does not have the same compelling, uh, I should say that has a more compelling directive than the idea that we need to launch drone attacks. And now we know not just on people who we, in an incredibly loose definition of the term, present imminent threat to us, but we know by reporting in McClatchy that we, we keep, kill people with drone attacks just as a bargaining chip. Just to develop relations with other countries. Just to get things from other countries. The second point that uh, Greenwald says it's crucial to understand this causation is because it's often asked, what can we do to stop terrorism? The answer is right in front of our faces. We could stop embracing the policies in that part of the world which fuel anti-American hatred and trigger the desire for vengeance and return violence.
1: This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Kerr. Fox News celebrated the dedication of the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. During a softball interview with Bush's former chiefs of staff, Fox News ignored economic history to forward Andy Card's absurd claim that Bush exercised fiscal discipline.
7: It was an emotional time for America and an emotional time for the president, and his leadership made a difference. One thing that Josh Bolton did was help bring fiscal discipline to reality, and President Bush probably has the best track record of any modern president in terms of fiscal discipline at the federal government level as well.
1: According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the drivers of current and future public debt are policies from the Bush presidency. What's more, according to former President Reagan advisor Bruce Bartlett, when Bush took office, the CBO projected a $3.5 trillion surplus through 2008. Instead, Bush delivered a $5.5 trillion deficit over his two terms.
8: I live in western Massachusetts, just outside the city of Northampton, which is a lovely place. Among its many downtown charms, Northampton, Mass., has a really awesome and elegant big public library that's called the Forbes Library. Forbes is not just a centerpiece of downtown life in Northampton. It turns out it also has national significance. Uh, Forbes Library isn't named for a U.S. president. There's never been a President Forbes. It's actually named after some rich guy judge who donated the building. But Forbes Library in Northampton, Massachusetts, contains... The Presidential Library and Museum of former U.S. President Calvin Coolidge. That's all tucked away inside there somewhere, inside the place where I used to check out DVDs back when I couldn't afford rental fees at Blockbuster. Calvin Coolidge's papers and his presidential memorabilia are tucked away inside that building that doesn't even have his name on it at the public library in Northampton. Calvin Coolidge is the last U.S. president to not have an official, freestanding, named-after-him presidential library. Since him, since Coolidge, all of our other American presidents that we've had, even Nixon, they all have an edifice built somewhere in their honor. The tourist brochure from the uh, National Archives about all the presidential libraries uh, includes this kind of creepy map that makes it seem like the disembodied spectral heads of all these presidents loom over whole regions of the country. Look at poor Arizona. They had nothing to do with Nixon, but he looms over that state like a death's head. Before today, this map showed all of the different places that you could go in the country as a, as a member of the public to explore our modern presidents and the things they have preserved for history about their presidency. Well, as of today, as of May 1st, 2013, you can add a new one. Brochure is now out of date. Down there by LBJ and Poppy Bush in Dallas, Texas, today, the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum officially opened to the public for the first time. And I think it is important to know... I think it should probably be said every time somebody notes that there is a George W. Bush presidential library. I think it should be said every time that this is, rather bluntly, a museum that is designed to make you think that the Iraq War was a great idea. Seriously. There's a game that you play inside the George W. Bush Presidential Library, and there have been all these sort of vague print press descriptions about this game that it lets you decide. It sensitively handles the various controversies of the Bush presidency by letting you decide. No. We finally today got footage of the game being played. We got permission from the library. We sent a crew down there with a camera this morning to show, so we could see for ourselves, what happens when you play the game. And it's amazing. The library is open to the public for the first time as of today. And this is what's happening there today, when people from here on out go to the George W. Bush Presidential Library to play the decision points game. This is what happens. Watch.
7: George W. Bush made many tough decisions as president. Now you'll get a flavor for what that's like. Take a look at the list of scenarios in front of you. First, you will select which one you want to tackle. The majority of the theater chose the threat of Saddam Hussein. President Bush had to make a choice. One, seek another UN resolution. Two, lead an international coalition to remove Saddam. Three, take no action and accept that Saddam Hussein will remain in power. You are about to select expert advice from a variety of people. Just as President Bush did, you will have to weigh conflicting points of view. Okay,
8: we're ready to start. Work fast. The clock is ticking. So with a literal drumbeat, an actual drumbeat to war coming out of the speakers inside the theater, you then go about soliciting advice from members of the intelligence community, from the Defense Department, from Congress, from your White House advisors. And while you are getting all that advice, while you're getting those briefings, you get interrupted by ominous breaking news developments.
9: If we act to depose him, other countries could use our actions to wage unjustified wars in the future. Has
6: found not on the list. This is the first
2: really solid evidence that Iraq's declaration is
8: incomplete. After you deal with all the breaking news interruptions about new weapons that weren't disclosed before being discovered, and after you solicit all the advice from your fake actor experts, it's finally time to make a decision. And they do set up these three options for you to choose from, right? You can seek a new UN resolution. Okay, that makes sense. You can invade of course, they don't say invade. They say, lead an international coalition, which means invade. Uh, And if you want to not invade, what's the label for not invading? That choice is labeled, take no action. So that's the neutral presentation of options here. You can lead, or you can do nothing. (laughs) If you choose to do nothing, well, President Bush's former White House chief of staff then appears on screen and very obviously expresses his disappointment in you.
7: Time's up It's time to make a decision You were asked how to address the threat of Saddam Hussein You had three options The people in the theater today decided to take no action And accept that Saddam Hussein will remain in power
8: And accept that? Way to go, wusses Andy Card doesn't just stop there, though, with his disapproving, almost disbelieving look. He then introduces President Bush to come on screen and make the case for why the correct answer is actually that you should have invaded. When I first read descriptions of this, I thought what they meant was that you would get historical footage of George W. Bush from during his presidency, you know, documenting the history of how the Bush presidency actually handled this issue at the time. But as you can see, this is President Bush now. This is contemporary George W. Bush taped recently, still making the case today that invading Iraq is the right answer.
2: My first choice was to use diplomacy rather than putting American troops into
8: harm's way. First choice, diplomacy. He goes on to explain all the U.N. resolutions that were passed to try to get Saddam Hussein to comply. Then he launches right into this explanation for why invading Iraq was the right thing to do. Because smoking gun was going to be a mushroom cloud, because Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, Saddam being linked to terrorist groups. Seriously.
2: After 9-11, the stakes were too high to trust the dictator's word against the weight of evidence and the consensus of the world. Saddam posed too big a risk to ignore. He had used weapons of mass destruction in the past, showed every sign of continuing to pursue such weapons, and supported international terrorist organizations. The world was made safer by his removal. With his departure, 25 million Iraqis had the chance to live in freedom and build a free society. The new democracy in Iraq can be a valuable ally in the heart of the Middle East and a beacon of hope to reformers around the world.
8: Imagine at the Bill Clinton Presidential Library, an interactive exhibit designed to prove that he did not have sexual relations with that woman. Imagine an interactive meet-tricky-dick hologram exhibit at the Nixon Library showing you point by point the ways in which he really isn't a crook. You know, the weight of evidence did not show that we had to invade Iraq. There was no consensus of the world that we had to invade Iraq. When we invaded Iraq, look at this, every country in the map that is shaded blue here, every country on this map shaded in blue was against us invading Iraq. Does it seem like there was a world consensus that we should invade Iraq? The head of the UN at the time said that he considered that invasion to be illegal, The consensus of the world was that George W. Bush had to lead an international coalition to invade Iraq? Are you serious? These little kids, who as of today are going to our nation's newest presidential library to learn the unvarnished history about this presidency, are being told that Saddam Hussein showed every sign of continuing to pursue weapons of mass destruction. The case to invade Iraq was not mistaken. The case to invade Iraq was cooked up. It was a hoax perpetrated on the American people. And they are still cooking it up right now, ten years to the day after the mission accomplished speech. As if the last ten years never happened. This is how kids right now, as of today, are being taught that part of our nation's history. I kind of think this is a national
5: scandal.
3: Hey, did you hear Chris Christie opened a gym? Oh, no, I'm sorry. George Bush opened a library. I'm right. sorry. I had those backwards. <laughs> All right. So George Bush's library opened. We talked about it a little bit last week. But they have, they have a thing now. Uh, well, it's the newest U.S. presidential museum, and it recounts George Bush's eight tumultuous years in office. But it also gives visitors a chance to decide whether they would make the same key decisions that George Bush did. They have the central exhibit at the museum is called Decision, Decision Points Theater. This hmm. is true. Hmm. I'm not making this up. It's not called, hey, you try to do it. <laughs> <laughs> See how you make out. (laughs) That's what it should have been called. So it's called Decision Points Theater, and it gives visitors a chance to watch footage of breaking news from the Bush era, listen to actors posing as officials and military leaders offering advice, and then you have to make your own interactive choice on the key crises that Bush faced, right? So. That starts off with a video from Andy Card, which was Bush's chief of staff. And he said, this is the opportunity for President Bush to say, come and try to experience some of that which I had to go through. And I made some impossibly difficult decisions. Yeah, I remember those impossibly difficult decisions, like when he decided not to read bin Laden set to strike inside the United States. Remember when he decided not to read that briefing? I remember thinking, man, that's a tough call. That was a tough call. Remember, And then remember when uh, he decided to sit in a classroom for 10 minutes after he was told of the attacks? <laughs> I remember thinking, man, glad I didn't have to decide between jumping to action in a time of national crisis or finishing a children's book. <laughs> that was a tough call. And then when he decided not to go after Osama bin Laden and instead divert our attention by starting an illegal war in a country that posed no threat to us, I remember thinking, man, that is a difficult mm. decision. Because it's such a bad one, such a yeah, bad it's very one, very difficult. These are all when bad it's decisions. So, bad. so inside, so they they actually let Rachel Maddow's camera crew go inside the Bush Museum and put a camera up again in this Decisions Point Theater. Mm. So they're talking about the Iraq War, and on the it, it, it'll have you can make three decisions. One is uh, one is lead an international force. That's the decision. Lead an international force. Mm. The other one is get another U.N. resolution. And the third choice is do nothing. Mm-hmm. So, those are your choices <laughs> those, uh-huh. those those aren't false choices aren't uh-huh. they first of all lead an international coalition. I like that you had it was like you Poland, Latvia, and Tony Blair, and I think that was it <laughs> uh, and oh, we had Australia too okay so here's what george bush so here's this is what you there's know, the, sh-
10: uh, across the street there's an international house of pancakes that gives you a better sense of history <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> better choices <laughs> so here's what here's yeah. what George Bush says at the library you read, this is this is actually happening at the library. So here's the thing.
2: The states were too high to trust the dictator's word against the weight of evidence and the consensus of the world. Saddam posed too big a risk to ignore. He had used weapons of mass destruction in the past, showed every sign of continuing to pursue such weapons, and supported international terrorist organizations. The world was made safer by his removal. (laughs) With his departure, 25 million Iraqis had the chance to live in freedom and build a free society. The new democracy in Iraq can be a valuable ally in the heart of the Middle East and a beacon of hope to reformers around the world.
3: Wow, so that's George Bush it was a big success over there now 25 million Iraqis are free they have liberty Iraq is now an ally of the United none of that's true by the way none mm. of that they're you not an ally
10: how that that region has just
3: stabilized completely oh, yeah he God really bless him. he really re- so here's here's the chief of staff to Colin Powell Lo- Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson here's what he has to say how Iraq is doing today ready today
7: and let me just say Iraq is a mess today. It is an absolute mess. You've got the Saudis funding the Sunnis in a resurgence of the civil war. You've got Maliki in the back pocket of Iran. So what we have, as George Bush doesn't tell you in his library, is an ally of Iran in Iraq now. You've got the Kurds about to establish their own state in the north, and Iraqis who know anything about their country predicting it will break up in the next four to five years. So that's what George
3: Bush did for Iraq okay, so but it was great that we got four presidents to come and blow smoke up his ass last week it was great it was great no. that that Barack Obama stood there and told us what a great guy he was a week after the bipartisan commission said he was a war criminal
10: and that you well know, it was uh the thing is is uh when they were all those presidents, were uh, talking about how great George W. Bush was. It was the only time that they were bigger liars than George W. Bush. Yes. Uh,
6: yes,
3: yes, you're exactly right. Um, no, I forget where I was going.
5: They're in a club, though. Isn't it proper to act that way? I think he was going to buy them dinner, so they were trying to be nice to him.
3: <laughs> At the International Hustle Pancakes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, And so there's never, there's never a reckoning. You know, no, there's, no. Nev- there's never there's never, going to be a reckoning unless he goes outside the country. Then I guess they'll arrest him. You know him. what?
10: Millions of, uh, in, well, not millions, but thousands of uh, innocent people died because of his inept
3: decision-making. And his punishment is that he gets to paint puppies now. <laughs> yes, that is his punishment. So it's the same old, same old um to the point where here's, here's Tony Blair. He was being asked by David Gregory what he thinks of George Bush was a very tough question. And here's, a, here's, his, response. here's his response. You saw
5: President Bush up close as a man during a very difficult times for any leader. Talk about your relationship, what it was like to sit there today in this, this moment of finality, even for a former president, the dedication of his library.
3: Wow, tough question. Yeah, hey, hey, wow. Tell us what you was think. That ES, was, was that on ESPN? Because they were throwing throw softball. Yeah, yeah. What does he like as a man, which has yeah. nothing to do with, you know, yeah, I tell... mean, as a, what kind of aftershave did what he What kind use? of food did he like? Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know that You know that guy that you uh, started an illegal war with? Tell me about him. <laughs> but as a man. Tell me about him as a man. Here's what Tony Blair has to say.
4: Well, I thought it was, it was a great advertisement for America today, by the way. I mean, you you have five presidents, including President Obama, And all behaving with a sort of graciousness and and, uh, uh, civility towards each other, I thought was fantastic. And President Obama actually put his finger on it when he said, it's impossible to know George Bush
3: and not like him. So, you know, I... Yes, yes, it is impossible to know George Bush and not like him. But if you know what he did and you still like him, you're Donald Rumsfeld. (laughs) Yeah. That's the only answer to that. <laughs> okay. And and he has that's to that's why that's why not knowing George Bush is a much better thing. Much because better. I would
5: prefer that, him, yeah.
10: You know that he's a dick.
3: <laughs> you know what though, you leave that library thinking he was a great man. He was a great man. Right? right. Well here's Tony Blair's got a little bit more to say. Let's listen.
4: Often people say to me back home, they say, Come on, you didn't like him really, did you? And I say, no, you can totally disagree with them, but as a human being he is a someone of immense character and genuine integrity. So, you know, you can say, with you know?" People have different views about decisions, but there's very few people who know him who, who don't like
5: him and respect him as a person.
3: It would have been great on the city council somewhere. <laughs> Like a mayor of a small town would, been, would have been good. I like how they pretend again, Tony Blair pretending. It was just a difference of opinion. I was against war crimes. He was for them. I was against... gentlemen's uh, disagreement. I was solid. against lying to my own people in my own country about starting an illegal war for nefarious purposes. He was for it.
9: So let's leave it alone
1: Because we can't see eye to eye. There ain't no good guy, there ain't no bad guy, there's only you and me and we just disagree.
11: What you doing this weekend? Got any big plans? If for some reason you happen to find yourself in or around Dallas, Texas, there's a brand spanking new attraction that just popped up right in your own backyard. Introducing the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. Yesterday was the grand opening of the new Bush Library for the general public, and this weekend marks the library's long-anticipated inaugural weekend. And if you're going to be in Dallas over the next few days, I'm telling you, you just must check it out if only for the shock value. Last night on this show, Rachel discussed the main attraction inside the new Bush Library, which is an exhibit called Decision Points Theater. It's basically an interactive game where you can reenact the biggest decisions that George W. Bush had to make as presidents. Decisions like, should we invade Iraq? So the problem, as Rachel pointed out last night, is that when you try to say, no, we should not invade, please let's do anything but invade Iraq, President Bush pops up on the screen and starts making the case of all the overwhelming evidence against Saddam Hussein. Evidence that has since been thoroughly discredited ten years later in what's supposed to be a library is being taught as fact that Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat who must be dealt with unilaterally if necessary. So there's a certain shock value to the new Bush library. But if the Iraq war isn't exactly your thing, if you want to relive the glory of another Bush decision... The George W. Bush Library gives you the opportunity to do that.
7: Take a look at the list of scenarios in front of you. First, you will select which one you want to tackle. The majority of the theater chose Hurricane
2: Katrina.
11: Yep, Hurricane Katrina. What is the decision point that the Bush Library asks you to confront when it comes to Hurricane Katrina? A disaster in which nearly 2,000 Americans died, many in their own homes. What's the decision point that's laid before you at the Bush Library?
7: Officials in New Orleans are overwhelmed. The president can send in troops. But those troops would serve in a supporting role to state efforts and would not have law enforcement powers. Unless the president invokes what's called the Insurrection Act. President Bush had to make a choice. One, rely on the National Guard and local police. Two, send in federal troops in a supporting role with no law enforcement authority. Three, invoke the
11: Insurrection Act and send troops to restore order. Excuse me, restoring order was the problem when it came to Hurricane Katrina? Seriously? The main dilemma faced by President Bush when it came to the government's response to Hurricane Katrina was quelling disorder? The Bush Library takes you through this whole scenario about how to deal with the problem of looters and how to restore law and order in New Orleans. That is the decision point. No mention at all of, you know, search and and rescue. Eight years later, the people of New Orleans, who were basically left to starve and dehydrate and die in our city, mostly elderly people and children, eight years later, these people are memorialized at the Bush Library as public enemies, not as citizens who were in need of relief. Americans
9: are facing lawlessness and chaos. We need to send in federal troops and to the city in a state of insurrection so our troops have the legal authority they need to restore order. Look, federal troops aren't trained police officers. There's a danger that sending them in
10: will put them in harm's way without the ability to defend themselves or the training
9: necessary to apprehend violent criminals.
2: I decided that sending in federal troops would diminish authority was better than sending in no federal troops at all. It was what the crisis required and the troops helped restore order in the city.
11: Okay, The legacy of Hurricane Katrina that's on display at the Bush Library is that order had to be restored to the lawless and violent city of New Orleans. And thank goodness President Bush was there to make the right call! Wow! This game at the Bush Library is supposed to make you feel the intense pressure of the presidency. The minute-by-minute decisions that you have to make as developments unfold all around you.
10: One of the most powerful broke yesterday. Another
7: levy broke today. There's no food, no water, No electricity.
2: It's getting increasingly chaotic in New Orleans. The city's homeland security chief says there are gangs of armed men moving around the city. Now
7: no. no, we need help. Now. Time's up. Okay, it's time to make a decision.
11: So it should be noted that the level of urgency that's on display inside Decision Point Theater was not so much on display when it came to the decider himself. This was President Bush the morning that Katrina made landfall, sharing a cake with John McCain in Arizona. This was after his administration had already been informed that levees in New Orleans had been breached. This was President Bush on day two of the disaster. He it up with a country music star in Southern California. That night, as the situation was growing worse and worse in New Orleans, George W. Bush decided to return to his ranch in Crawford, Texas to finish up his vacation. When he finally headed back to D.C. the next day, President Bush got an aerial view of the damage in Louisiana and Mississippi. But by Friday, five days into that disaster, his aides at the White House were putting together DVDs of news coverage to convince President Bush how bad things were in New Orleans. During those five days, President Bush was not on the edge of his seat, as the Bush Library would like you to believe. He was basically checked out. That's the real history. The truth is the American people have already decided how they felt about President Bush's leadership during Katrina. And while his approval ratings before Katrina weren't that impressive, they never recovered afterwards. Fifteen months after the failed response, Democrats took control of the House. They took control of the Senate. And they took a majority of gubernatorial seats across the country. The public has already decided. But hey, if you're in Dallas this weekend, you've got some time. Go see how President Bush saved a city from disaster and restored a sense of calm in all the disorder.
9: Hey, what's going on, Jay? Chris from Colorado Springs. What an interesting book.
6: The
0: Transparent Society by David Brin. Every day, new technology nibbles at our privacy. Does that make you nervous? David Brin is worried, but not just about privacy. He fears that society will overreact to these technologies by restricting the flow of information, frantically enforcing a reign of secrecy. Such measures, he warned, won't really preserve our privacy. Governments, the wealthy, criminals, and the techno-elite will still find ways to watch us, but we'll have fewer ways to watch them. We'll lose the key to a free society, accountability. The Transparent Society is a call for reciprocal transparency.
9: Uh, about the transparency that, Edgar, you just read, summary you just read at the end of the episode. Uh, one thing that immediately came to mind, I'm an actor, I, I do a lot of performing... Arts here in Colorado Springs, Fine Arts Center, things like that, and I immediately thought of you know the endless black budgets of our government, which you know no matter how much lobbying we did, we probably still be black, or they just covered up with something else. I imagine this like weird Truman Show type reality where we have cameras supposedly at the Pentagon or you know at our local police station or or wherever, and it's just a big old facade and instead of the government lying and misleading us with information and leaks about this happened or that happened like they do currently, it would actually be elaborate, supposed surveillance video of them performing the lies they already tell. So, I mean, I, I like the notion of, you know, if it, if it is gonna be inevitable, how are we gonna harness it anyway? But I just have a, it's not, it's not free from corruption, unfortunately. It could totally be, be manipulated, and, you know, then you got Manchurian candidate ideas going all down that way. That's just reflexively the first thing I thought of was, oh, hey, I can make a lot of money pretending to be a senator doing something behind closed doors when I'm being surveilled. Like, that's just kind of my initial gut reaction to it. Thanks for what you do today. Stop playing climate control or climate global warming episodes. They're depressing. Makes me want to curl up into a ball and cry. Anyway, take care. Bye.
10: Hi Jay, this is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and I just wanted to mention there's another thing about the cameras and the proliferation that allows the police to continue another type of oppression, uh, and it's the same type that happened during the Civil Rights era, Jim Crow, so on and so forth, which is the lack of protection. The South con- you know, consistently tried to disarm African Americans, In New York, a lot of it came from you know, fear of the immigrants, and not only do they disarm them, but then the police just don't bother to protect them. And one of the things that cameras allow you to do is say, Well, we've got these cameras everywhere, so we're watching your neighborhood to see, to make sure that we can send police if something happens to you. But unlike a squad car sitting on the corner, you can't necessarily tell if they're watching that camera at that time. So who's to say that? they might swoop in when there's something easy, low hanging fruit like a drug deal happening or something like that and then they might just pretend they didn't see when a group of uh you know, a group of black youth is beating up a young black man, they just say all oh, boys will be boys and they let it be and pretend they didn't see it. So whereas, you know, in if somebody's trying to, to to break into a jewelry shop or something like that, they might decide, Oh, well we're watching the cameras now. So it provides a little bit more of that kind of police neglect which is one of the forms of oppression that we have right now where we have the combination that we don't allow you to protect yourself but we also only send the police in when we want to stop you frisk you and you know take your your young men away and put them in jail so that's another problem with the cameras that they add some some significant cover for that type of neglect
5: This is Ben from, uh, from Orlando, <laughs> and I was actually in prison for quite a while, and the private prison industry in Florida has just exploded. Uh, originally, there were just one or two, and all of three. They keep trying to make more. And one of the things that they do is that the Department of Corrections, unless you know this or not, the Department of Corrections in Florida used to be called the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And then when they realized that that isn't really what our goal is, our goal is just to have you housed here, make sure we have as many people possible, they changed it. No, we're not longer rehabilitating anybody. It's no longer their goal, it's not their purview. Uh, Before I got out in 2010, I wasn't even eligible to take any classes to help prepare me for the outside world where you could learn how to like go for a job interview where you could learn how to write a check even. Um, They didn't give me any of that because they said that I you know, I didn't apply for it, I'd been down too long, I could figure it out on my own. Well, What happens with the private prisons is the private prisons often make certain things that are just silly. Uh, we well, can get better shoes because you can only buy fancy shoes from the canteen and we'll be able to buy these and it's just a, a, a way to, to trick people to get there. But all of the friends that have had that have gone to the private prisons, they're terrible. They never have any classes. There's no rehabilitation to get to the law library, which is a right. It's actually a right under what's called Chapter 33 in the Florida Statutes for Prisons. And in the private prisons, a lot of guys that are time barred and if they don't make it to the law library they could be they could be SOL so the private prisons are horrible and they want to make sure that you're treated as badly as you possibly can when you get there and the department of corrections that's run by the state isn't much better but at least they have classes at least they have things you can try to learn how to do and get a trade so you know a lot of the people there were 100 percent right the the private prison industry is really destroying a lot of what the point of a prison was. I mean, if you remember a penitentiary was actually came from Quakers. The idea was that you'd go to prison, you'd sit there and then you'd become penitent, forgive yourself for your sins, have God forgive you whatever you believe in, and then you get out and become a better member of society. And that's completely changed. And so uh you know, I really appreciate you putting that episode out. It's a hundred percent true. And uh just keep up the good work. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today I have what I think is sort of a big announcement, and it might make you wonder why the thing that I'm announcing didn't already exist, but I will address that. So first of all, uh, what I'm announcing is brand new bonus content for members of the show, those who actually pay as little as five bucks a month or on a yearly basis to actually support the production of the show. And so you you might wonder why, you know, 720 episodes in are members only just now getting bonus content. And the answer to that is members actually were getting bonus content before. I started a program for members in 2009, right along the same time I announced bonus content for those members. But to be honest, it never lived up to what it should have been. Uh, you know, I thought that what made sense at the time was this is sort of a unique show. You know, me talking and, and trying to say some things as part of the bonus content didn't really make a lot of sense. I, I, I've always thought that I was sort of incidental to the uh, to the show. And so, you know, what people really like is the great content from other providers. So I was going to pr- try to provide, you know, a little bit of extra content along those lines to the members. It seemed like an okay idea. It wasn't perfect, but it was the best I could come up with. And, you know, a handful of people appreciated it, but, but, you know, really it, it didn't live up to, you know, what I hoped and, and essentially no one Really took advantage of it, you know, even if they had access to it, they didn't really take advantage and so you know a while back, I got rid of that, and essentially, you know almost no one seemed to notice uh, almost no one complained or, or or even asked you know not not even in the form of a complaint, just like hey, you know whatever whatever happened to that uh, bonus content and so you know for the, for the last little while members haven't been getting bonus content but i've always thought that they should you know I, obviously members deserve to be thanked in the you know for the same reason NPR gives out tote bags when you uh, you know send them a donation you know even if people would support the show f- with nothing in return and i get that people do that people want to support the show for the sake of supporting the show it's still nice to be able to give a little something extra and it it, it just makes sense so i 'm trying to revive the whole bonus content concept, and what i 'm going to do is uh, it 's something different than I did before, obviously, so you know i I never wanted to do bonus episodes, and I actually promised the audience years and years ago that i wouldn 't do that because at its essence, the show is really about sharing. Content and information, and I I didn't ever want to put any of that behind a paywall. Say, you know, if you want to hear this great content, then you have to pay. You know, maybe you get 75% of the show is free, but members get an extra 25%. I just, that completely rubs me the wrong way. So that's not what I'm doing. Um, And, and, you know, as I said, I never did bonus content with me talking before because I just didn't think anyone would be into it. But over the last year or so, the combination of the voicemail section and my comments sort of in response to the voicemail and and the the relationship that that's created between host and audience has gotten a really positive response and you know i i, I didn't know how much people would like it but you know at least some people have written and said that that's actually their favorite portion of the show and so i thought okay perfect that's what can be bonus content if if it's Worth people's while, and they're interested in that sort of thing, then that's definitely something I can provide more of because I, I do get more voicemails than I have time to play on the show. So there we go. That's what bonus content is for. You know, extra voicemails, extra comments, you know, extra, uh, you know, conversation topics that I, I, you know, I make notes for myself to bring up topics on the show and I don't have time. So, you know, that's what bonus content is for, <laughs> obviously. Uh, so, that's the essence of of what the bonus content will be. That'll be for new members who sign up or any existing members will all have access to the bonus content. Secondly, though, I, I came up with this idea that, you know, on its surface seems kind of blasé. But then I got excited about it because, uh, you know, there's quite an extensive archive of the show now. You know, over 700 episodes. And so I went through the entire archive. I made sure everything was labeled properly. Uh, you know, Episodes didn't used to be dated. Uh, episodes didn't used to have category topics in their titles, that sort of thing. So I went through, I cleaned everything up, I made sure that everything's labeled properly, and put all of it, the entire archive, up on Dropbox, and then including... Uh, and this is a little known fact no reason anyone would actually know this, but the first three months of the episodes that I created for the show they I mean they went out to a very very small audience uh, at the time that I produced them but because I you know at about the three month mark I think I switched servers or something like that and those were lost I mean they I mean they they weren't lost to me I had them but they didn't Make the transition. So, no listeners have heard those first three months of episodes since 2006. So, that's kind of an interesting thing, a little cool thing that, uh, you know, episodes, even if you've gone through every episode on the entire website, these, you know, 30 or so episodes aren't there. And then also, because there are so many episodes in the archive, uh, I went through and picked out my favorite episodes, so if you have an interest in going back and kind of uh, doing like the the geological dig through the archives and you know going past the different layers of stone to see what life was like back in history you know at least back to two thousand and six, I found my episodes that I think are you know the best ones that really stand out or you know they they cover a really interesting topic or are particularly funny or whatever so Again, members will have access to that list of episodes that I particularly enjoy. And then finally, as an extra added bonus bonus, over the years, because I do so much editing of audio and, and whatnot, it's, it's just second nature to me, that I've, I've come across a lot of stuff over the years that I've really, really liked, but it hasn't necessarily gone into the show. I mean, not everything's political, right? There's a lot of really brilliant radio you know or youtube videos or you know different things that i just think are great brilliant bits of media that i have sort of plucked from the internet and kept for myself just as a personal archive and you know all i mean it's all available for free you can go find it yourself but as with you know as i do with the show i'm curating it for you so i've actually also created a folder that will give you access to sort of Jay's favorite bits of audio, period, whether they be political or not. So I think this sort of interesting, you know, collection of bonus features, you know, between the, the bonus content, which will be ongoing, uh, you know, I've already launched one episode of it available to members as soon as they sign up, and, you know, a combination of that and the archives and the curation of the archives uh, and, and the benefit that that can bring, you no know, I, th- I think I think it makes sense for from both ends. i I feel much better about having something to give members to say thanks, and I, I hope that the members will feel better about you know having a little something in exchange for their hard earned dollars that help support the production of this show. So if you are not already an existing member of the show, when you sign up through the membership tab at bestofleft.com, I will simply respond via email, giving you all the details you could possibly need to get all the content I've just described, bonus content and the archives, etc. And in, in a perfect world, I would be able to email existing members, but unfortunately, much to my chagrin, my email list is simply not up to the task of being able to do that. It would be a Logistical nightmare to, to, to try to make that happen. So if you are an existing member, or even if you think you are and you're not sure you don't remember, uh, then please just send me an email and I will happily uh, check on your membership status and, and send you all the details right away. I deeply apologize for not having a simpler way to make that happen, but it is what it is. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, especially, of course, thanks to all those who support the show either by becoming a member.
8: Light, light, now black and white Who took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning
4: on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a
5: living room Who shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out